I want to say that I'm very delighted that um, this many of us could get together. This is the first time we've ever tried having a gathering uh, right before a holiday. So it's a nice way to celebrate. And you can put on the tape. <laughs> now it really starts. <laughs> hmm. So in keeping with the season and the holidays, tonight's talk is on gratitude. And I brought some readings, some of my favorite spiritual sources, uh, Deep Thoughts from Saturday Night Live, and then Deepest Thoughts from Saturday Night Live, and then Children's Letters to God, and a few other things. So just to set a kind of a tone. which means you can take it sincerely but not too seriously, right? (laughs) You know, a widely known part of the Buddha's story or myth is that right after the Enlightenment experience, in his earliest teachings he spoke of the qualities, the spiritual qualities that were very much part of our nature and that emerged as we started to learn to pay attention. And the very first quality that the Buddha taught about was generosity, was that of dana, And he taught about it on a lot of levels, the, the generosity of this natural willingness and desire to give of ourselves, to give our love and give our help. And he also taught it in terms of a generosity of giving our thanks, that there is almost nothing sweeter than that space of when we genuinely feel grateful, thankful for what is. And it's not an inactive experience. There's a real sense of giving our, our gladness and our, our um, gratitude to this life, not to any one being. So this is dana, the Pali word dana, generosity or giving. And it's actually a common denominator for every wise tradition I've encountered. Not thou shalt be generous, but rather that generosity is a joy because it's really a deep expression of who we are. So right after last Thanksgiving, I got something in the mail, which I'll read you if I brought it. I didn't bring it. (laughs) That hasn't happened in a while. I can try to tell it to you by heart. Eh, I'll give it a try. So there's this guy. (laughs) I'm not as good when I'm not reading these. And he's out deep in the jungles or in the forests or somewhere where there's dangerous wildlife. And he realizes that just as he had feared he's being he's being kind of hunted. At first it's quiet, but then it becomes clear there's a bear behind him, so he starts moving faster and faster, just the way you're not supposed to, you know. He makes a lot of noise and looks around, and it's like saying, come on, chase me, you know. So he's running around, running along, and he's just, and then he starts praying to God. He says, God, please help me, save me, please, something. And all of a sudden the bear stops. 
and the bear absolutely still. And the skies seem to break open in color and the ro- there's a rosy light to the sun and so on. And the bear puts his palms together and says, thank you God for this food I'm about to receive. <laughs> <laughs> How did, how did I do? <laughs> so, the teachings in the Buddhist tradition that are called the precepts, that describe kind of the attitude or way we can move through the world, are the opposite of injunctions on how we should be. To say that generosity is a spiritual quality is to say that it happens as we discover more of who we are. The more we realize that we belong to this earth and that we're connected with all of life, there's a sense of abundance and it's natural. And there's a sense of care because who we are is all of us. And so our concern and our circle of compassion extends out in quite a boundless way. It's been described that it's joyful because we become more real. That as we meditate and listen to our inner life and really are receptive to the world around us, we discover the truth of who we are. This genuine belonging to the web of life. And there's joy in that. Now, what's not so well known is an observation by King Kosala, who was one of the rulers of India at the time of the Buddha. And he described the Buddha and his band of monks as being quite merry, as being, quotes, positively playful, spontaneous, happy, and lively. I don't know if you get an image of Buddhist monks as being somber. It's kind of a stereotype, but these guys were supposedly very playful. And who knows what the reality is, but somehow or other these observations managed to make it for thousands of years through the scriptures. So um, just to look at it, they loved most to sit and to walk, and they lived outdoors in the woods, and they ate, and they slept in the woods, and they loved to serve, and they loved to teach. And they love to be with each other in Sangha, in community. A simple life. And it's not so surprising when we actually look at it closely. And if we investigate in our own lives, what are the moments where we really feel happy? What are they like? You know, there's the the small gratitudes of, oh, I got a parking space. I had that today. I went down to the Smithsonian and was so excited that I got a parking space. You know, it felt really good. So there's that kind of happiness, like, ooh, things are working out. And then, of course, there's the small unhappinesses, like the museum I went to turned out to be the wrong museum. (laughs) I went to see an IMAX, uh, the IMAX show on the Galapagos. Who's seen it? Can I see? It's awesome. We'll talk about it. So I ended up getting a great parking space and going to the wrong museum. (laughs) There's two IMAX theaters now, you know. So there's the little happinesses of things working out and things not working out. But then there's the deeper experiences of gratitude and well-being. And they don't come about because things went our way. They come about because we kind of put aside having to have things a certain way 
and live that moment in a receptive way. Our gratitude arises when we just touch what is, as it is, and really feel a sense of wonder in how things are. What we notice, and this is more and more as we practice, is the moments we cherish are not moments when we're lost in thinking. The moments we cherish, we're not walking with the preconception about what's supposed to be happening. How a person's going to behave, or how an animal's going to move, or what the leaf's going to look like as it swirls down, carried by the currents of the wind. There's not a preconception. There's a very deep immediacy and connection with just what's happening. And it's been described as don't know mind, in the sense that we're really not carrying ideas about the world. The world's simply happening, and there really is a quite open, engaged presence to be with. It's interesting that to really be with somebody, if we think we know what they're going to say, or we think we kind of know about them, there's no real curiosity. There's no real wonder. And I've seen it as a therapist, you know, being sometimes in kind of a speedy mode where somebody will start talking about something and I'll go, oh yeah, I know what that's like when you're clinically depressed, you want to sleep so you can cover up not having to feel such and such about such. You know, and my mind will click off, oh yeah, I know that one. And in the moments that that happens, I'm not paying attention with this quality of here's this being, and what truly is the experience? And I miss a whole lot. Thoreau said something in the lines of, the greatest miracle is if we can look through another being's eyes, if even for just a moment. And to do that, we have to put down our world in a sense, all our ideas about what we think should be or who we thought they were. It said that the world is not, the problem in the world's not a lack of wonders, but for lack of wonder. That we go around very busy and with an agenda and with things to get done, and we're kind of operating off of how we think things are, our map of the world. And it's a rare moment that we put down all our controlling of ourselves and the world around us, and just touch the mystery as it is. Just let it be. So wonder is expressed in all sorts of ways. When we do actually stop all our doings, this world seems pretty amazing. When I finally did get to the right IMAX theater, (laughs) this um, show on the Galapagos, you wear these, you know, 3D glasses, and it's, it's not only like you're there, but you're there in a way you can't get quite that close when you're really even there. And the, that, you know, that line that something's stranger than life? Well, what can be stranger than life? I mean, what an amazing thing, these creatures that, birds that stop flying because there are no natural predators for millions of years. So they just, their wings kind of shrink and just helps them move around the water. Just amazing, amazing 
creatures and species. So I promised you some other um, descriptions of wonder and gratitude. And this is from uh, Saturday Night Live. The memories of my family outings are still a source of strength to me. I remember we'd all pile into the car, I forget what kind it was, and drive and drive. I'm not sure where we'd go, but I think there were some trees there. The smell of something was strong in the air as we played whatever sport we played. I remember a bigger, older guy we called Dad. (laughs) We'd eat some stuff, or maybe not, and then I think we went home. (laughs) I guess some things never leave you. If I sense you're not liking these, I'll stop. (laughs) Here's another on gratitude. If the Vikings were around today, they would probably be amazed at how much glow-in-the-dark stuff we have and how we take so much of it for granted. (laughs) It only gets weirder. When I found the skull in the woods, the first thing I did was call the police. But then I got curious about it. I picked it up and started wondering who this person was and why he had deer horns. (laughs) That creeps up on you, right? (laughs) Most of the time it was probably real bad being stuck down in a dungeon. But some days when there was a bad storm outside, you'd look out your little window and think, boy, I'm glad I'm not out in that. One more. This is, again, from seeing this um, show on the Galapagos. There, there's a suggestion. Here's one for a new animal, if, if some new ones get created or evolve. Something that stings you, then laughs at you. <laughs> Perhaps for me, the... Um, most wonderful way to reconnect to wonder is I have now a three-year-old niece and I have a 13-year-old son and I kind of watch how they go through the world and there's a book that I sometimes read from which I mentioned and I'll leave out if anyone wants to leave through it children's letters to God dear God did you mean for the giraffe to look like that or was that an accident Norma (laughs) Dear God, instead of making people die and making new ones, why not just keep the ones you got now? James. I went to this wedding and they kissed right in church. Is that okay? (laughs) Neil. It's okay that you made different religions, but don't you get mixed up sometimes? (laughs) Arnold. (laughs) Do you really mean do unto others as they do unto you? Because if you do, I'm going to fix my brother, Darla. (laughs) Thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. Are boys better than girls? I know you are one, so try to be fair. (laughs) Sylvia. Please send me a pony. I never asked for anything before. You can look it up, Bruce. And then, as some of you know, there's that wonderful... uh, experience that Maurice Sendak had. He was the illustrator of those wonderful Wild Things books. And this was a experience he had with a child. He said, oh, there's so many wonderful ones, but let me just give you one that I really like. And it was a letter from a little boy. 
He sent me a charming card with a little drawing. I loved it. I answer all my children's letters, sometimes very hastily, but this one I lingered over. I sent him a postcard and I drew a picture of a wild thing on it. I wrote, Dear Jim, I loved your card. Then I got a letter back from his mother and she said, Jim loved your card so much he ate it. (laughs) That was to me one of the highest compliments I've ever received. (laughs) He didn't care that it was an original drawing or anything. He saw it, he loved it, and he ate it. (laughs) So the question then that comes up for me is, what stops us from experiencing this world with, with the natural wonder that's in us? We all have that, and yet what was it that had us cover up the wildness and the wonder and the playfulness, the thankfulness? And the description of the Buddha is that our conditioning is such that we get entrapped in wanting and fearing. And the entrapment is that in some way we always are wanting it different. We're wanting it more or less, more pleasant or less unpleasant. And in a way, prison's been described like we're in this room and we're constantly rearranging the furniture to have a better setup, to get more done or to figure out something different or to become more comfortable. We're always rearranging the furniture, but what we don't realize is the door has always been open. And in any moment we can step out, really step into the present, anytime we want. We can stop the busyness of our doings and really take a breath and pause and just sense what's true this moment. It's in the pausing it's in the presence, it's in the receptivity that we can actually touch this world. Then there's naturally gratitude and wonder. What stops it? We don't stop to be here for it. When we begin to practice and when we begin to slow down, what we find is we become aware of our normal reactivity how much we are geared to keep moving, how much busyness is kind of wired into us and how difficult it is. And the Buddha described this as a source of suffering, this this constant drive to have more of this and less of that and to react to pleasure and to react to pain in a way that we're lost. We've lost our sense of what's true. Now this is another classic teaching story. A big, tough samurai once went to see a little monk. Monkey said in a voice accustomed to instant obedience, teach me about heaven and hell. The monk looked up this mighty warrior and replied with utter disdain, teach you about heaven and hell? I couldn't teach you about anything. You're dirty. You smell. Your blade is rusty. You're a disgrace, an embarrassment to the samurai class. Get out of my sight, I can't stand you. The samurai was furious. He shook, got all red in the face, was speechless with rage. He pulled out his sword and raised it above him, preparing to slay the monk. That's hell, the monk said softly. The samurai was overwhelmed. 
the compassion and surrender of this little man who had offered his life to give this teaching to show him how. He slowly put down his sword. He was filled with gratitude and suddenly peaceful. And that's heaven, said the monk softly. We know that we're in, when we're in reactivity, we're small and we're tight and we don't feel whole. We don't feel as real and as full as who we really are. And we know that when our heart is responding with tenderness, when we are experiencing this world and responding to the pain with a genuine care and to the beauty with reverence, that's heaven we feel a sense of genuine who we are. Now take a moment just so we can kind of experiment in a more experiential way. And if you need to move your legs, do. And then come sitting up and let's just check inside. And I'd like you to bring to mind, if you will, after you've come sitting still and closed your eyes and taken a few breaths. A situation where you get particularly judgmental, where you have a real complaint, a blame probably towards another. That's mainly the situation that's worth thinking of. We all go around with complaints. If you look through the day, there's all sorts of little ones. But pick one where you have a complaint that's kind of reoccurring towards a person and sense what it is most about the person or the behavior of the person or the situation that makes you feel blame. And if it's not an individual, it might be a group of people, it might be something political, but just somewhere that really invokes in you a sense of judgment and blame. And if you want to explore this, then let it be as full as it is. Really sense what most bothers you, what offends you. See it visually, hear the words, sense the themes. And sense in your body what it's like to really feel judgment feel a major complaint about a person or a group. Exaggerated if you really want to sense what your body's like when you're in this and what your mind is like. Is the mind large or small? Tight, open? What's your heart like when you're in judgment, when you're blaming? What's your sense of who you are when you're in this? What kind of a person? What kind of sense of inner identity? For most of us, it's not an unfamiliar place. It's one of the sub-personalities we live in a lot. What's it like when we're in blame? when we feel in some way victimized and offended. 
What's the size of your being? And then take a few deep breaths. And then please reflect on a person, situation, that evokes deep and genuine appreciation. Again, a person's probably the simplest. Where you feel a real sense of gratitude. Reflecting on what is it about this person, this situation, that most brings up the sense of appreciation and gratitude. So that you can feel that in your body. Feel your heart. Let it be felt there. Sense what most allows you to feel grateful. What does your body feel like? Take some time. Let it play through your body and notice what that's like. What does the mind feel like when you're grateful? What's the sense of who you are like? The who I am experience. Again, take some breaths and take some moments in your own heart and mind to just sense the different facets of your being. This isn't a right-wrong exercise. These, the judging mind is a conditioning that we all get caught in and gratitude is a natural experience that we all touch also but just to get familiar with the differences in your body and your heart and your sense of being. You can open your eyes and if anybody, maybe a few people, be willing to just share whatever you noticed, it's sometimes helpful to hear that. Anybody, when you just, yeah, sense the differences. Gratitude versus blame. What do you notice? What about your body? What do you notice in your body? Soft with gratitude. Hmm. So soft versus tight. Okay, so when there was a feeling of judgment of somebody else, then you felt judged by them. It became just an experience of judge and be judged. Yeah. And loving was reciprocal also. Thank you. Yeah. Who else?
So real contrast between kind of rigid and tight and feeling the insecurity of it versus flowing and open. Yeah. Thank you. you all hear? This is important. So with the blaming, there was a sense of comfort and familiarity and boundary. Okay? Now this is important because there's a very good reason we go into blame, our anger, our judgment. That in some way, it gives us something. It might give us a sense of power, or it might give us a sense of security, it might be a way to protect ourselves. If I stop judging that person, I might let my boundaries down and get hurt. So there's, there's a real, there's a motivation behind judgment that's very strong. So it's not as simple as stop judging and everything, all of a sudden you're liberated. It's to just recognize that, okay, so when I'm judging, there's, there's a boundary and there's a comfort in it. And just acknowledge that. Mindfulness means acknowledge how it is. And then notice, and when I'm in gratitude, there's a dissolving of boundary. Just, just that. Thank you. Yeah. So there was a real sense of, with judging, it was very mental in your head, and when, the gra- when it was with gratitude, it really was an embodied, opening kind of awareness. Yeah. Anyone else? Mm-hmm. Could you all hear that? This is, this is again, quite, it's quite beautiful. With the judging, there was a separating out, a sense of self and other. And with gratitude, there was a coming together, a sense of your communing, in a way, with another. And, and in a way, that, that kind of describes perfectly what the inner dynamic is. There are times that we feel threatened and we feel like we have to make a distance and judging has a function. And there's times that we need that wise discrimination absolutely to survive. So this isn't to say we shouldn't have wise discrimination, but its function is to make distance. Ultimately, if we don't have the capacity, it's, you know, Emily Dickinson's, you know, he drew a circle to shut me out, but I drew a circle to bring him in. And I didn't say that well. It's a beautiful little verse. Does anyone know it? Can anybody quote that Emily Dickinson? I'll bring it in another time. The idea being that sometimes we have to shut people out. And the more we've been wounded, the more that's, that's a temporary important thing. 
but eventually to be free and to feel the wholeness of who we are, we need to have the courage to include, to feel our connectedness. And, and gratitude is a pathway to it. You can feel it in your body that when you start feeling grateful, there's a sense of here we are together versus that person way out there and me here. Let me read you from Rumi. This is how a human being can change. There is a little worm addicted to eating grape leaves. Suddenly he wakes up, call it grace, whatever, something wakes him. And he's no longer a little worm. He's the entire vineyard and the orchard too, the fruit, the trunks, a growing wisdom and joy that doesn't need to devour. This is the basic transformation that is described in all spiritual traditions as the perennial philosophy, that we live in a conditioning to make us feel separate. We live in our wanting, fearing, striving sense of separate self. But gradually, as we slow down, as we look more deeply, as we listen more fully, what we discover is that separation isn't there. What we discover, we wake up by grace to realize we are this world. It's not like, take care of nature, we are nature. It's not like, honor the earth, we are of the earth. We are made of the stars. We belong with each other. There's this sense of shared awareness that really is our common denominator. We wake up and discover we are the vineyard and the orchard and a growing wisdom and joy. And there is joy in that. There's a real freedom in that non-separation. So in this poem, Rumi says, we wake up by grace or whatever. What we definitely find that helps us wake up is practicing waking up. In formal practice, what do we do? sit and we get quiet and we start learning how to pay attention and not be lost on our kind of habitual thought trains but tapping in again and again to the mystery and the scariness and the messiness and the beauty of what's right here and now. We get intimate and you can't really be intimate with another being or with anything in this world if there's not that capacity to slow down and really listen. So we do it in our formal practice. We train ourselves to kind of give up or relinquish the habituality of going off on this thought train or that, or shifting our body whenever we want to get more comfortable, or getting up and getting three more things done, or blitzing out, blitzing out and vegetating via TV. We just keep coming back to paying attention. And what happens? we drift off again and again. And that's completely natural and okay. Our only job is notice it when we can and then gently re-enter the moment with respect, with kindness. As we learn to do this in formal sitting practice, it begins to filter out through our day. There are more moments of the day that we kind of stop being on automatic and we can actually listen and hear the sounds of a bird's or the tone of someone that we love speaking 
or see the colors of the leaves and the sky or just feel our breath and have a real sense of gratitude that life feels vivid in that moment. You know the difference between being off in a thought form and really feeling the vividness of having music move through you or somebody hold you. It's the difference between being in a dream and waking up. So we do it in formal practice and we do it informally through the day, this pausing and deepening attention and then feeling the amazing gratitude that comes when we actually connect with what is. We're learning to stop trying to make it different. This doesn't mean that when we see suffering that out of compassion we don't do what we can to alleviate suffering. This is about responding to life with care but not with a reflex to push away what we don't like and to grab what we like and be lost habitually in our thoughts. This is about learning to discover a sense of okay with what is, this moment. Without desire, writes Ryokan, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A patched robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone I hike with a deer. Cheerfully I sing with village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fits my heart. There's a genuine reverence that arises out of this receptive presence. And our earth is in trouble. Just the way our bodies get in trouble, our earth is in trouble the living body of the earth because there hasn't been a listening and a receptivity rather there's been a controlling and greed and fear so this practice is radical and it's radical for the benefit of these hearts and minds and for the benefit of the earth because if we want to act on behalf of this earth it's going to have to come out of a genuine reverence And that reference is because we really stop being so busy and really feel that love in our hearts. A Japanese Zen master speaks of an unexpected moment, a moment of surprise and gratefulness. People often ask me how Buddhists answer the question, does God exist? The other day I was walking along the river. I was suddenly aware of the sun shining through the bare trees, its warmth, its brightness, and all this completely free, completely gratuitous, simply there for us to enjoy. And without my knowing it, completely spontaneously, my two hands came together and I realized I was making gasho bowing. And it occurred to me that this is all that matters, that we can bow, take a deep bow, just that, just that. Just imagine if even one-fifth of the moments of our day when we're in some sort of a griping or complaining mode, rather 
we were pausing and touching what was here and in some way bowing. You know this bowing, and we do it in here, some of you might wonder, what are we bowing to? It's simply revering life. I bow to you, and I'm just honoring the life, the spirit that's in all beings. I bow to the life within me. I bow to what this statue behind me represents, which is that courage and that willingness to really touch what's here, to open our hearts with love. So this is the essence of reverence. It takes practice because we're too busy and too fast-paced to sometimes touch it in a genuine way. But reverence is who we are. We are life. You know, there's a a wonderful book I mention here now and then, The Universe is a Green Dragon. And if you haven't read it, it's by Brian Swim, and it's just, if you like kind of bringing together science and mysticism, this one's wonderful. And in this book, he describes the universe as waking up, that we are the universe waking up and celebrating ourselves. We're celebrating the mystery and the love and the beauty that is who we are. So when we bow, it's not like we're bowing to something out there. We're bowing to this beauty and this life that is. In every day, that we're, what we're going to encounter is pleasantness and unpleasantness and all the levels. If we're present, our response to pain will be care. And then we will respond in an active way with compassion. And if we're very present, our response to beauty will be this reverence. And we will do whatever it takes to preserve and cherish the life that's been given. Without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A patched robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone I hike with a deer. Tearfully I sing with village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fits my heart. So we'll do a bit of a sitting together that's um, around this sense of gratitude. Again, if you need to stretch, do, and then please come sitting. It won't be for very long, though, so you don't have to repair as if you're going to be doing a long, arduous sit. This is just touching in. There's a mantra, Om Namah Shivaya. Many of you have chanted it with us here. It's playing often when you come in. And although we're practicing formally Buddhist meditation, this is quite a Hindu chant and a quite beautiful one. Om is infinite, Namah I bow. Shivaya, Shiva is the Lord, Shiva of the dissolution, the letting go. Creation dissolving, creation dissolving. 
the meaning or essence of the mantra Om Namah Shivaya, I bow to this whole cycle of life and death and life and death. It's a deep honoring, appreciation of what is. So we'll do a little meditation and then chant that together. We begin the meditation just by connecting with what's true in this moment. So feel your breath and feel your body. You might take a few full breaths. Inhaling, and as you exhale, just let go a bit. And let the awareness scan the body and feel what's true, where there's pleasantness or unpleasantness, tension or tightness. Whatever calls your attention, just notice that with gentleness. And then let the awareness center at the heart, feeling the breath come into the heart, touching the heart, breathing out, letting the heart be open. As you breathe, you might sense the half smile the half-smile of the Buddha, letting it be a very real but slight smile, and sensing the mood of gentleness and care that can accompany this. Feeling the heart, feeling the smile. And take some moments to reflect now on where you feel the most gratitude, the sources that come most easily to your mind what you're grateful for. And as you bring them to mind, let the gratitude be felt as an actual sensation in the heart. Bringing to mind where you feel gratitude. Feeling your heart say thank you but letting that sensation of thank you be very real, very physical. Take your time letting several or however many people or facets of life come to mind, each of which feeling in your heart with a thank you. You might even mentally hear the words you feel your own generosity of giving thanks.
Om Namah Shivaya, bowing to the beauty, to the sadness, to the exquisite mystery that is our lives. As we chant together, you can continue to bring to mind whatever it is that you'd like to bow to in your life. So chanting and just honoring the beings, the beauty, what's true. Om Namah Shivaya.
May all beings touch their hearts and their reverence and their love for life. May all beings live from that love and discover their oneness and the joy and peace in that oneness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.